Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you this morning again, and as always, in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for yet another day that you've allowed us to see. We thank you for the blessing of salvation, for the giving of the Holy Spirit, giving of faith and repentance to the truth. We thank you for the forgiveness of all our sins for all blessing, provision in all things, food, shelter, clothing. Lord, we honor you for your kindness to us. Be with us now as we go in your word and praying for us here and all who are listening and shall listen, that you may grant them ears to hear. Lord, we honor you, we thank you in all things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen. Romans 3, Romans 3, verse 27 to 31, but our interest is verse 31, Romans 3, verse 27 to 31, Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit said, where is Boston then? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Do we then nullify the law through faith? God forbid. On the contrary, we establish the law. We have two titles to our message and they are essentially related. Ideally, the title is verse 31. Verse 31 is our title. Do we void the law through faith? Or through faith we establish the law? Now, to the burden. What does that mean? <laughs> it's always, or it always comes down to what does that mean? Whatever verse is quoted, what does it mean? So we've come to the text that has proved to be problematic to many in respect of the law and gospel distinction. And it is the text of Romans 3 verse 31. And many have read it over the millennia to say the law as being represented by that covenant that God enacted with Israel on Mount Sinai has not been abrogated, that is, it has not been set aside on account of the gospel. In other words, the redeemed are still under that old covenant as they 
are also under the New Testament of grace in the blood of Christ. The old covenant of the law is still binding on the conscience of those that Christ has redeemed. And this argument is the strongest among the Reformed community. And they use this verse as one of their biggest proof texts to that end because sincerely they have nowhere else to go, especially in the New Testament. And the next part of call is usually Psalm 119. That's the pattern. Argue with them. They will always take you to these places. They're going to go to Romans 3.31 and from there they will take you to Psalm 119 verse 19 where the psalmist says Oh how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. First, Psalm 119 was not talking about you or me meditating. It is strictly a messianic psalm, which means it is Jesus who was speaking. And it is he who loved the law and meditated on it day and night because he had to fulfill every jot and tittle of it. Jesus himself said, the scriptures, the law and the prophets testified of him. And also, he said, in the volume of the book, a reference to the whole Old Testament, it is written about me and I have come to do your will, O God. So all these things are about Jesus. <laughs> There's no sinner anywhere on planet Earth walking on two legs, <laughs> served or unserved, who is meditating on the law day and night. It is a lie. No such person is to be found meditating day and night on the law. And once one claims that, know this, that they are lying. <laughs> they are lying, they are deceived. And personally, I will never trust them again with respect to the gospel. I don't want to hear from them. For me, the law-gospel distinction is critical to a proper telling of Christ and to the hope of the believer. Failure to make the distinction is a red line for me. It has to be a red line for anyone who respects the truth. Because the law is the law and the gospel is the gospel. Each stands on its own for the purpose that God gave it. The law has its purpose. And so is the gospel. But they are not the same thing. 
The law is not the gospel, and the gospel is not the law. So a distinction has to be made. Making the law-gospel distinction is what got the Lord Jesus in trouble with the Jews. Because he came and said, salvation comes down to what one says about him. What do you say about me? Not what people were doing for God. Salvation was in him, was about him, to be accomplished by him, and is apart from what sinners do with the law. Because the Jews came to him, wanting to do something, they asked him, Good teacher, what shall we do? What shall I do? Jesus says, no, there's no doing, man. It's too late. Remember the testimony of the good Samaritan. Jesus says, it's too late for you to do the law because you are the man who was beaten and robbed and stripped, left for dead, left naked. So your situation is so desperate that all you need now is a good Samaritan to pick you up and take you to the inn and provide for you and pay for everything and clothe you. That's what you need. That's compassion. You need grace. You and I don't need the law. We are grace cases. Okay? So we see that the law gospel distinction is what caused a lot of trouble for the apostles, especially Apostle Paul, because of the Jews. And if we do not make the same distinctions, we are not on the side of Jesus. We are not on the side of Paul. We are not on the side of the truth. And many cannot make the distinctions because of unbelief. That's what it comes down to. It's unbelief. Or because of human traditions that have been passed on to them in their confessions of faith. Or because they just do not know how to connect the pieces. And I hope that it is just a failure of connecting the pieces and not unbelief. And those who are, sorry, and those who refuse to make the distinctions are they who are quick to label us as antinomians, meaning law haters, those who are against the law. And this is not a new accusation, but it is pejorative language as it is untrue and reveals that the person who is making that accusation is still ignorant of the matter. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know. Making law and gospel distinctions does not mean that one hates the law. It's a false conclusion. 
It is a lame accusation. It just means that one understands and sees the distinctions and the implications of how the law relates to the gospel. But I would rather be called an antinomian than to mix Christ with Moses, to mix Mount Sinai with Mount Calvary, to mix Hagar and Sarah, to have Ishmael and Isaac playing video games together. <laughs> when God says Ishmael has to be kicked out with his mother, Isaac and Ishmael cannot play at the swing set together. No sleepovers. <laughs> okay. That's clear teaching. So this is where we are. Apostle Paul has labored in three chapters of Romans to teach us about the matters of the gospel. The gospel of Christ, the gospel of God. And he has taught us about the spiritual condition of all men and women, of both Jew and Gentile, and said they both or all are under sin, that is, there's none righteous, no, not one, there's none who seeks after God, there's none who understands, all have become unprofitable. And in this spiritual state, the law could not and will not, would not help a person with respect to salvation. Because the law was given by God with a function or a purpose to teach, but not to give salvation. The law was given for diagnosis of a problem, but not for treatment. We have to understand that. So Paul says the law has given to give the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of our sickness, the knowledge of our inability to meet that standard of righteousness by which eternal life is end. And the law, by upholding and unbending a non-negotiable standard was there to prove that God cannot be approached in peace on the basis of human obedience, on the basis of human merit in obedience to the law. So the law was given to shut up all men under sin and to make them guilty so that none would burst before him and say, look at me, I am so good, I am so cute. <laughs> the law was given to silent, to silence the mouths of men and women. And I'm not seeing that many silent mouths in this regard, especially from the Reformed community. 
people are still jabbering and claiming that the law is the rule of life for the redeemed. There's no text for that. There's no text that says the law is the rule of life for the redeemed. Because to say that is to say that the law is still unfulfilled for the people who are supposed to be redeemed and therefore are still under its condemnation. When Paul brings the law, he tells us of its function and says it was not to make men and women righteous by following its commandments or its precepts. He said, in verse 20 of Romans 3, For no one is declared righteous before him. Zero. Not a single person is declared as righteous before God by the works of the law, which means by their obedience to the law. Why? For through the law, for there is giving the reason for the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law was for the very opposite. To prove to sinners, that is you and me, that we naturally had no Share in the righteousness of God. We naturally had no share in the righteousness of God. We fell short of the righteousness, of the goal, of the standard. Okay? And thus, if one has been silenced by the law, they only bring one testimony. They bring the testimony of grace alone. Of Christ alone, of faith alone, of the cross alone, apart from the law. That's the testimony that one has been silenced by the law. Romans 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do we know that? How do we know that all have sinned? By the testimony of the law. By the fact that all men and women die. That's testimony that all have fallen short. Men and women breaking the law. And this they do every single day. If not every single hour. If not every single minute. And may I say every single second. Even those who claim to keep the law, break the law every day. And that is how we establish the truth of the law in that it is faithful to prove the sinfulness of men and women and their just condemnation every time that you sin and you are aware of it. That is a reminder to you of your condemnation apart from Christ. That's the function of the law. So there's no path for you to life in the law. It is a dead end, a cow de sac. Our two previous houses 
were on a cow de sac. You could not drive through them. When you got to our house, that was the dead end. You could not go through. So the law is a dead end. There's no way for you to go to God by the law. So there's only one way out of its condemnation, out of its hopelessness. It is Christ who is the way. He is the truth and the life. Christ is the way, not the law. So it is only by grace abounding to sinners that one shall be declared as righteous by God. And in this light of the helpless human spiritual condition and their condemnation, Paul then comes and says, this is the best news that you have ever had. There's actually a way. <laughs> There's actually a way and it is free. It is the righteousness of God that has been revealed, that has been made known, declared a righteousness that is apart from the law, a righteousness that is apart from you doing anything. A righteousness that is not of our own doing is a breath of fresh air. <laughs> what a hope, what a relief, what good news. How could there be a righteousness that is apart from the law? That is very interesting statement. How could you have a righteousness that is apart from the law? The statement is separating law from grace. It is making a clear distinction. A righteousness has been revealed that is separate from the law. That's the distinction. The righteousness that is from God is apart from the law. And yet the law demands performance from the sinner. It demands a perfect performance, a perfect obedience from start to finish from one who cannot do it. The law demands that you be perfect right from the time that he had a sippy cup and throwing tantrums as a baby. The law is already condemning you for your tantrums. Yeah. It's unrighteousness. Because they are saying, me, 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 me. Give me my sippy cup. And the gospel comes and says to sinners, there's a righteousness that is apart from your doing of the law, not a righteousness of God plus your law doing, no, righteousness separate from the law. And this righteousness was attested by the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament gave testimony to this righteousness. This law, this law, 
attested of this righteousness. It bore witness. The righteousness that the law attested of is the righteousness of another. It attested and anticipated of the righteousness of God in the person of Christ Jesus. Okay? So what that is saying is the whole Old Testament, including the law, attested of both the person and work of Christ. So when you read the law, you should find the person, testimony of the person, and also of the work of Christ. So the person of Christ is found in the law as that prophet who is greater than Moses. And Moses said, we should listen to him. Listen to this prophet. And when this prophet came, God the Father said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So this Christ Jesus is the Lord our righteousness. It is he who is being attested of by the law. Okay? So Christ comes with a righteousness that is or that is due to his faithfulness. His faithfulness. His doing. As he fulfilled, as he accomplished all the terms of salvation for all who were given him by the Father. So Christ, by his own obedience, that is his faithfulness, to every jot and tittle of what was required for our salvation came and established righteousness for us. Okay? So this is the level of conversation to which Paul is discussing the matter of law and gospel. And Paul is answering an objection from his own internal logic, but most likely from those who would have been under the law, the Jews, and saying, this is what would be or would have been their objection to all that Paul has said. And they'll come and say to Paul, if what they're saying is true, that righteousness comes apart from the law, then that nullifies the law. It makes the law of no effect. It makes the law useless. Okay? But Paul says, no, not at all. The point of the gospel is not to discredit the law, but to uphold and honor the claims that are in the law. I wish someone would understand this fundamental statement. I'll repeat it. 
The point of the gospel is not to discredit the law, but to show how the gospel through Christ is the only answer and how it is answered to the claims and demands that are in the law on behalf of sinners. <laughs> so the gospel has answered to all the claims that have been put on you by the law. So the gospel does not discredit the law. It answers the demands of the law. So the law speaks at two levels. It speaks for God. And it speaks against men. It speaks for God as righteous and just. And it speaks against men as sinners who are unable to do the law and are deserving of death because the testimony of the law is that the soul that sins must die. Not the soul that has a habit of sinning. No. <laughs> the soul that sins even one time as happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, just eating from a tree. Adam had no neighbors. He didn't do anything wrong to anybody. Just picking a fruit from a tree and brought them, sorry, death and condemnation came upon all men because of that. So they saw that sins must die. That's the testament of the law. So when the law says, or when the law comes against men, it says guilty. It says, it says under sin. It says condemned. To then lower the standard of the law, to make it doable, is not upholding the law. It is a cheapening of the law and of God's grace. If you are doing the law, you have downgraded the law. You cannot do the law unless you reduce the standard. There's no way that a sinner can do the law without reducing the standard. Which, unfortunately, is the idea that is being advanced by those who claim that the law is the believer's rule of life. The law is the rule of life for the unredeemed people because they have not met its requirements for it to stop nagging them for it to stop pronouncing curses on them. Just as a bank will not stop calling your number, will not stop writing you until you have paid up what you owe them. But as soon as you do, they do not care. They're not going to be sending you any more letters. 
And the gospel is saying, the claims of the law have been fulfilled on your behalf. They have been honored. Justice has been fulfilled by Christ. And God is satisfied. God is happy. Hence, the ashes of the burnt sacrifice to say the wrath has been satisfied. The ashes of the sacrifice were caused by the burning of the sacrifice on account of sin. The burning itself, the fire represented the wrath of God on Christ. Because Christ was to be the sacrifice. And after the sacrifice had been consumed by the fire, what did you have left? You had ashes. And the ashes represented the full satisfaction of God by the suffering of Christ. And if you know anything about burning wood, ashes cannot burn anymore, no matter how much fuel you add to them. You can add 25 thousand gallons of fuel, they don't burn. You burn the fuel, but not the ashes. <laughs> and so the law has been fully satisfied by the death of Christ on the cross. So the law prepared the stage for the coming of God's righteousness. In other words, it prepared for the coming of Christ and I'll give another example. When the President of the United States is about to visit any place, any city, any country across the world, his security team is dispatched even weeks or months ahead to prepare for his coming. And the law was given to prepare for the coming, for the arrival of Christ, to lay the carpet for Christ. Not to be taken, not to have pictures taken together with Christ. No, to lay the carpet for Christ to walk on. So the coming of Christ, the arrival of salvation, grace and truth, by Christ, the law by Moses. So, Christ Jesus could not be useful and would not be useful to anyone if righteousness could come by our own doing. Okay? Christ would be useless to us. And the cross would mean nothing without the law condemning us and without condemning Christ in our place. But Christ went onto the cross because of the law. The law condemned him in our place. And this is what Paul has said in this latter part of Romans 3. Let's go to our text, Romans 3, 27 to 31. 
Paul has said. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he also not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And that to say both Jew and Gentile, both the Jews are they who were circumcised. And if they should be saved, if they should be declared as righteous, it would only happen one way. That is through faith in Christ. But Paul is saying, where is boasting in the matter of salvation? There are two principles that have been laid before us for our consideration. And we must find the one principle that removes all manner of boasting from sinners. And what is that principle? Is it the principle of law? Is it the principle of our own good works? Our own obedience? Or is it the principle of faith? Because by nature, law-keeping engenders boasting before God. As we saw the testimony of the Pharisee in Luke 18, he came to God and was beating his little chest and claiming that he was righteous and thanking God that he was not like other men. He did not commit adultery. He did not murder. He did not get anything from people by force. He was not an extortioner. He was not even like the text collector. He had the nerve to point to the text collector to God and say, see, I'm not even like that guy. That's boasting. That's what the law does. It causes boasting. And God doesn't like it. Okay? So the law builds confidence in the flesh. That's what it does. So that could not be the way for God to accept sinners. That could not be the way for us to relate to him. There must be another way that leaves sinners with an empty bag. Begging for grace and mercy with nothing to talk about. God be merciful to me, the sinner that I am. Be merciful to me. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lord, if you are willing. That's begging for mercy. That's the principle that is agreeable with God. Begging for mercy. Be merciful to me. So that is the principle of faith. When you say be merciful to me, that is the principle of faith. But how does faith do that which the law could not do? Why is it that faith is agreeable with God? But the Bible says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
Because faith boasts in the righteousness of God. In the righteousness of Christ. In the righteousness of another. Faith is agreeable with the way that God has arranged to do his business. Faith says, yes, Lord. <laughs> Christ is enough for me. That's faith. So the nature of God will not accept any kind of boasting. Therefore, faith in Christ is the only way to be compliant with God's demands and to be compliant with the law because of Christ. Therefore, there's no way that one could be under faith, that one could be in Christ and still claim to be under the law. It does not work. To say that one is under the law and yet are still under Christ is to serve two masters. And Jesus said, that won't work. You won't satisfy either or neither. It is to say, every day, you still have a quarter of bricks to meet as happened with the children of Israel in Egypt under slavery to Pharaoh. Every day, they had a quarter of bricks that they had to meet. And yet Jesus comes to me and says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy, and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me. Don't go to Moses, because Moses will give you bricks to make. <laughs> Come to him. It's a distinction that Jesus is making. Don't go to Moses. Don't go to Mount Sinai. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, because my burden is light. The burden of the law is not light. It is not. Peter said, the burden that our forefathers could not carry. Yeah? That's Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. And the other implication of saying you are under the law and under Christ is this. You are claiming that Jesus did not give the law everything that the law required of him. And yet Jesus came and said, not a jot or tittle of the law shall pass away unfulfilled. It has to be fulfilled. And so it was, it was fulfilled. And Jesus said it's finished. Okay. So to the statement, verse, in verse one, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Paul was not speaking to the continuity of the law and its covenant as binding on the redeemed, but to the purpose or function of the law in the salvation context, in the history of salvation. It is a theological statement, not a morality argument. Okay, you have to underline that, you have to write that down. Verse 31 is a theological statement, 
It's not a morality argument. He is saying, the law had a purpose in salvation history. And a very important one. In that God gave it to give the knowledge of sin. Yeah? Is to the function of the law that Paul is speaking to. Even as Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to serve wonderful people. <laughs> Not to serve sinners, which means lawbreakers, of whom I am chief. Christ came into the world to serve sinners. And at the birth of Jesus, the angel came and said, You shall call him Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins, from their law-breaking. In other words, sin exists to reveal the person and work of Christ in the salvation of his people through the law. Okay? So God gave the law to show men and women their need of salvation. Since well men do not need a physician, sickness reveals to us our need for doctors, nurses, hospitals, and medicines. But this did not stop there. Paul said, By the deeds of the law shall no man be declared as righteous before God, so the law was given to teach sinners that they cannot be made righteous by it. And it did not stop there. It removed all men of boasting by silencing all men and women, pronouncing them as guilty. And it did not stop there. Paul continues to build his arguments about the law and faith and says, let's go to Romans 4. Romans 4, starting from verse 13. Paul says, Romans 4, 13, For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world, was not fulfilled through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. See that distinction? The promise to Abraham by God in Genesis was not fulfilled through the obedience of Abraham, not through the righteousness of the law, that is, not through the righteousness of his own doing, but through the righteousness that comes by faith, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God freely imputes, as Paul has argued in the opening verses of Romans chapter 4, verse 14. Verse 14 of Romans 4. For if they become heirs by the law, faith is empty and the promise is nullified. See the distinction. If Abraham and his descendants inherited the promise and became heirs 
of eternal salvation by the law, by their own obedience to God. Then Paul says, then faith is empty. It's void. Christ is made useless. And the promise that God gave is nullified, is cancelled. Because the promise of salvation does not come from the law, but comes from God's unconditional promise. Because when God was promising Abraham at the time of the cutting of the covenant, what did God do? He sent Abraham into a deep sleep so that he would not be bound by the terms of bringing the promise by his own obedience. He gave Abraham a good nap and a lot of Christians could use a nap when it comes to salvation. They need a nap. Paul says, to put the redeemed under the law makes faith empty or void. I did not say that. I did not say that. Paul said, the Holy Spirit said that. To put the redeemed under the law makes faith void. And Paul is arguing the unconditionality of the promise of salvation. And saying, all of salvation is by promise. It cannot be caused by sinners doing anything. Not you repenting, that does not cause salvation. Not you being faithful. Not you weeping over your sin. Not you doing anything, nothing. There's nothing that you do to cause this. So the law would imply that the promise of God was conditioned on your performance of it. And Paul says, no, that nullifies the promise. And that means no hope, no salvation for you. And God will never, ever change his stance on that. So what about the law then? If faith brings the promise and its fulfillment, what does the law bring? The law has to bring something. People will say, the law will keep men and women from more sin. The law will stop people from stealing and committing murder and adultery. But what does the scripture say? Romans 4.15. What does the law bring? For the law brings wrath. <laughs> because where there's no law, there's no transgression either. The law brings what? Blessing? No. It brings wrath. That's what it brings. That's what it does. Because if you breach one commandment of the law for one second, one bite, I don't think Abraham, sorry, Adam even finished the fruit. I don't think he finished it. The commandment, the judgment already come. If you breach one commandment of the law, the wrath clause kicks in. Right away. 
And if God did not desire for there to be transgression, if God did not desire for there to be sin, then he would not have brought the law. That's what Paul is saying. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. So God purposefully brought the law because he desired for there to be transgression. But the law brings wrath because of sin. And that is how the law is not made void. The law without wrath is no law because there's no justice. Okay? The law is not made void. It is established by bringing wrath, by bringing condemnation, by bringing hopelessness to sinners, pronouncing them guilty. Now, verse 16, Romans 4. For this reason, it is by faith, so that it may be by grace, with the result that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are under the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. For this reason, salvation, eternal life, God's promise, his inheritance is by faith. It's through faith. And Paul says, so that it may be by grace. In other words, so that it may be by Christ alone. So that it may be by God's doing alone. That's what faith is saying. That it may be of Christ alone. And that means grace and faith go together. They are agreeable. Grace, faith, and the promise are agreeable. That's the correct way to believe the gospel. Birds of the same feather, they flock together, right? <laughs> law and wrath go together. The law brings wrath. That's what it does. They flock together. Sin, law, and wrath. Same WhatsApp group. So faith is another way to say salvation by grace alone. And this alone is what makes salvation certain to all. Paul says that salvation, that the promise may be certain to all. Okay? If you want to feel uncertain about your salvation, guess what? Put yourself under the law. Start working every, every day laboring under the law. And trying to do some honest evaluation, some navigating, as we always call it. <laughs> Try to do that. Before you know it, you're going to be sending me a message that you're feeling unsaid. <laughs> and then I have to take you back to the same message to make you feel saved. <laughs> you might as well just remain here. It's a safe place to be. Remain under faith alone, grace alone. Promise of God alone. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law ended that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. The law ended, the law was given, 
to increase human obedience. Is what is that what the text said? No. Paul said the law ended that the transgression might increase. In other words, the law increases sin. And the more law, the more commandments I give you, the more your sin increases. I'll give you just more commandments to break. Okay? That's what that is saying. And there's no need to airbrush it to make it access, acceptable to men or make it tasteful. We cannot airbrush the law to say, oh, the law is good. No, the law is bad for a sinner. The law increases the transgression. If you put yourself under it, you are going to increase your sin. Okay? You have seen the places where they put a big sign, do not go in there. And guess what? You see a whole line of people. <laughs> as soon as they tell people, don't swim through there, they're going to swim right through. Don't go through there. Ah, uh, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> you give people a commandment, they are going to break it. Okay? But the good news is, but where the transgression increased, grace did much more abound. Grace did much more abound over the law of a sin. This is what Paul is saying. Sin is here that's you doing sin. Doesn't matter how it increases. Grace always floats above sin. It doesn't matter how high you go with your sin. Sin can never be above grace. So where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Because grace means God on top of sin. Christ is sitting on the throne of grace. It's Christ who is on the throne, not sin. Sin is not on the throne. Okay? And without that second part of verse 20 of Romans 5, we would all be miserable, hopeless, because sin would continue to increase and increase the more with no end in sight. So the law increases sin so that grace may abound. See the connection. Because the riches of God's grace have to be praised. And that is how we establish the law. In other words, the law is a necessary component or a tool to the giving of God's grace and to the praise of it. God's grace and mercy have to be praised and there could not be grace and mercy to praise without sinners to redeem. That's the connection. And let's see if our understanding is correct. And it will be helpful to find another place where the same or similar question was asked in the Bible and answered. And thankfully we do. That should really help us to understand 
what Paul is saying, if anyone had any doubt of my interpretation of Romans 3, that one, we are just not philosophizing, we are teaching from the text. Okay, if we can't establish our doctrine from the text, then it is not binding on you. Okay, let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. In the first part of Galatians chapter 3, Paul was arguing and declaring the doctrine of justification by faith apart from the works of the law and asking the Galatians, these were Gentiles, Gentile believers, if they had received the Spirit by the works of the law or by faith because they were wanting to be under the law. They Judaized as they'd come to them and said, oh yes, of course, we do agree with the death and resurrection of Christ, but there's something missing. Just add a little Moses to Jesus, just a teaspoon of Moses to Jesus, to grace. And Paul says, no way. Cannot do that. Are you so foolish? Having begun by faith, having begun in the spirit, are you now seeking to be perfected by the flesh? By your own doing, by your own law keeping. What do you need the law for if you are already in Christ? If you have already been perfected in Christ? Paul says you are bewitched. But he went on to illustrate that Abraham was made righteous by the free imputation of righteousness through faith. Abraham was perfected before God by the imputation of righteousness. And that it is only through faith that one is counted among the children of Abraham. Even the Gentiles are also counted as the children of Abraham by the same principle of the imputation of righteousness. So only those who are of faith are blessed by God. Only those who are of faith are blessed by God. But why are those of faith blessed? What happens to those who are of law? Let's pick it up from Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on doing the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the book of the law. Keep on doing everything. People don't want to see that, that everything. You keep on continuously doing everything that is written in the whole book of the law. You have to keep doing it. You can't pick and choose. That's what that is saying. And that's coming from Deuteronomy 27, 26. So the law, by its nature, demands 
one to do all things that are written in it and to do it perfectly, to do it continuously to the moment of death. Failure, failure of which God pronounces a curse, condemnation. That's clear teaching. And that is not an anti-law idea as people would call us. Because that's what people say, oh, that's being antinomian. Because that's our doctrine. This is what we preach and believe. And Paul continues and says, verse 11, still in Galatians 3. Now it is clear, no one is justified before God by the law. Because the righteous one shall live by faith. The righteous one. See that distinction. No one shall be justified. No one shall be declared as righteous before God by their obedience to the law. But the righteous one shall live by faith. They are justified because of the faith of the gospel, which is the righteousness of Christ that God freely credits or imputes. First of all, see the contrast. In verse 11, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12 says, but the law is not of faith. <laughs> the law is not of faith. But says what? What does the law say then? But the one who does the works of the law will live by them. The law is not of faith. The Ten Commandments are not of faith, but are of works, because you have to do them perfectly. That's what that is saying. And then Paul says, the one who claims to do them shall live by them. In other words, they shall seek their justification before God by how well they obeyed those commandments, which is an impossibility. If you approach God by law, you cannot approach him on grace. If you tie yourself to the law, then you are stuck. Okay? There's no exit. You are stuck. So Paul was not saying there's actually a possibility for anyone to keep the law and be accepted by God. No. He was just saying, once you go that route, you're stuck. You cannot be having one leg in law and one leg in gospel, in, in grace. No, it's not going to work. Okay? Forget it. It's impossible. So what's the solution to the curse of the law? Christ has become a curse for us. By way of the cross. Christ has become a curse for us. He has stood in our place to give the law what it required. The law required our condemnation. So Christ was condemned in our place. He became a curse for us. So that the promise would come even to us Gentiles through Faith. So the cross does not make the law doable. 
Okay? It does not. It does not make the law a law-hanging fruit that we can now reach with a two-step ladder. <laughs> no, 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 no. The cross severed the relationship that we may have had to the law and brought us under a different administration, a different management. The promise of salvation came by what Christ did on the cross, removing the curse. Okay? And with that, Christ brought the promise, which is your salvation. Christ brought the spirit. Christ brought faith. These are things that are found only in the camp of Jesus, not in the camp of Moses. Okay? Now, Paul went further to illustrate his argument that the inheritance of salvation is of God's promise, that is, it is of grace and not of law. Promise means grace. That's the connection. Promise is equivalent to grace. Verse 15, Galatians 3. Brothers and sisters, I offer an example from everyday life. When a covenant has been ratified, even though it is only a human contract, no one can set it aside or add anything to it. Once you have a covenant, a covenant is a contract. A contract with terms of performance. If you have a job that you have to do, you go in and you agree what it is that you have to do. If you're changing roofs, if you're painting, whatever you're doing, installing electricity, you sign the contract that you're going to perform everything as was agreed. And then, in the light of that, you're going to get paid for all the work that you did. And if there's any breach of the contract from either party, either I don't perform or you don't perform, you don't get paid. Okay? Or if I perform and you don't pay me, then I'm going to take you to court. So a contract even at the human level is binding. And a failure to honor it brings about a breach that will need remedies. You're going to need Remedy, someone has to make restitution. Someone has to make a payment. Okay? Once it has been ratified, it cannot be set aside. Or you can't add anything to it. Now, hear this. Verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his descendant. Scripture does not say, and to the descendants. Referring to many, but... And to your descendant, referring to one who is Christ. So when God came in Genesis 12 and 15 to make the Abrahamic covenant, 
an unconditional covenant. He bound himself to that contract. And that contract is unchangeable. It cannot be changed. You can't add anything to it. Which means you can't add law to grace. You can't add your own performance to grace. Okay? And he said, the promises that God made to Abraham were to be accomplished in this descendant, not by the descendants of Abraham, not the plural descendants, but by the one descendant of Abraham according to the flesh. And that one is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the descendant of Abraham who was bound by God to bring the promise. Okay? So when we say salvation is by Christ alone, that's what we are saying. We are saying Christ as the descendant of Abraham is he alone who was under the contract of salvation to perform it. So the law is coming and saying, you, Sister Debbie, you have to perform for that promise to come to you. That's the distinction. That's the distinction. What am I saying? Paul says, verse 17. <laughs> what I'm saying is this. The law came 430 years later. Does not cancel a covenant previously ratified by God so as to invalidate the promise. The law codified on Mount Sinai when the children of Israel were leaving Egypt came some 430 years later after God had already given his unconditional promises to Abraham. The promises of salvation were in the Abrahamic covenant. And that covenant was an unconditional covenant to the descendants of Abraham. It was conditional on God himself through Christ. The law by nature is a conditional covenant. You do this and you get blessing. You don't do this, you get cursed. That language does not exist in the covenant of grace. It's all blessing. Sin abounds, but grace does more about. Okay? And that very fact of verse 17 of Galatians 3, the very fact that the law came 430 years later, meant that salvation was never conditioned on law doing by the sinner. Why? Verse 18. For if the inheritance, inheritance there is promise, is salvation. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise that God made to Abraham or that God made to Christ. But God graciously gave it to Abraham through the promise. So if the inheritance of salvation is based on the law, on human performance and faithfulness, 
then it is no longer based on God's promise. See that distinction between law and promise again. Promise is another way to say grace. The inheritance of salvation was only to come by God's grace. And Paul says, two categories here. Pay attention, two categories. Category A, inheritance based on law. And category B, inheritance based on promise or grace. And he says, you do not mix them. It is one or the other. It is law or gospel. It is law or gospel, not law and grace. Was going to hear some reformed, some very intelligent reformed people come and say, "Oh, it's law and gospel." No, it's law or gospel, because the promise does not come by law. The inheritance is based. On promise, not on law. It's distinction. So if a preacher is not making the distinction, they're not telling the truth. They're not telling the truth. And it is these distinctions that will cause you to be called an antinomian. Whenever you make these distinctions, you are going to be called an antinomian. But who is telling the truth? I believe I am telling the truth because I'm saying what the text is saying. Okay? Now, this is what I want you to see in the argumentation of Paul. Paul has presented to us the matter of salvation and how it works. Okay? But he has these people, the Jews, because the Gentiles were not really much into the law thing. They were just kicking it. Okay, they didn't care for no law. But the question still is, what then do we do with the law? If all of salvation, the inheritance, is coming from God's promise, why then did we labor for a thousand years and more under Moses? Romans 3, again, actually before we read Romans 3, Let's read Romans. No, no. I'm confusing myself. Let's read Romans 3, verse 31 again. Okay. I want you to see what Paul has done. He makes an argument, a theological argument of salvation. He works it. And then he gets to a point that he has to answer a question about, okay, if all that is true, what then do we do with the law? So he says that in Romans 3. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. We're going to see the same argument. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is going to come and say, oh, the believer is dead to the law. And he gave the example of the woman who was married whose husband died and that she could not go and be married to another man whilst her husband was alive. Okay, And so he works that whole theology of salvation. But then he says, are we going to say that the law is sin? Is the law sin? Then he says, may it never be. 
So now he begins to explain again. So that's what he's doing in Romans 3. That's what he's doing in Romans 7. And he's going to be doing that in Galatians 3. Let's keep going. So Paul has said, we establish the law through faith. But what does that mean? Let us hear the same question asked in the same context of salvation. Okay? Of salvation by grace alone. But these are objections that are being raised against salvation by grace alone, inheritance through the promise apart from the law, justification apart from your own obedience. There has to be objection. There's no way. Okay. I know Sean is a sinner. How can he be righteous? That's not right. <laughs> it's scandalous. Okay. Galatians chapter 3, 19. See the pattern of the question. Why then was the law given? It's the same question. Do we make the law void? Why then was the law given? If it doesn't save a sinner. Hear the answer. It was, aid, it was added because of the transgressions. It was added because of sin. Until the arrival of the descendant to whom the promise had been made. The promise had been made to someone. The law was administered through angels by an intermediary. The law, Paul says, was added because of transgressions to give the knowledge of sin. Okay? But it doesn't stop there. The text says, until, until the arrival of the descendant to whom the promise had been made. The descendant, singular, his arrival. Who was or is the descendant who was to arrive to whom the promise was made? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't miss the word until. It means up to the time of. So the law was binding up to the time that this descendant arrived. There's a specified time period there until some event, until some person has appeared, some event has happened, and when that does happen, then the law is retired. It has performed its function. That's why Jesus said, it's not going to be put away until all has been fulfilled. Okay? So the law was until the arrival of Christ. The law was in reference to Christ. So Christ is he who marks the timeline. When he shows up, you have the timeline for the end of the law for those who are in Christ. The law had a day of retirement. And it is this retirement date that reformed people want to deny the law. They don't want Moses to retire. 
Yeah? <laughs> also, Paul says the law was administered through angels. What's the point? The point is that the law is inferior to Christ because angels are inferior beings to Jesus. They are inferior mediators just as Moses is an inferior mediator. The promise of salvation came by a superior mediator in the person of Christ. So the law is tied or the law was tied to its giving to the mediation of angels whilst the promise of salvation was tied to the coming of Christ. See the distinction. The mediation of the angels in the giving of the law was God saying the law is inferior. Because if it was superior, it would have come by Jesus. So the coming of Jesus is what sets aside what was mediated through the angels. Okay? So you cannot mix those things up and not have a false gospel. Let's keep going. Verse 20. Galatians 3. Now an intermediary is not for one part alone, for one party alone, but God is one. And that is saying, the intermediary or mediator mediates for both parties in a dispute or a matter. But God is one. And this verse appears to be closely related to the last part of verse 19. Yeah? A mediator implies a covenant between two parties, right? Is that it? Both of whom have responsibilities to that contract. Which things are true of the law of Moses because it is a conditional covenant. God will do his part of blessing on condition that you do on part. Okay? But on the other hand, God is one that is the promise. The promise was unilateral and was given to man directly without a mediator. God alone having the responsibility of giving it in Christ. That's the distinction. The promise of salvation is mediated by God alone. That is saying Jesus is God. He's <laughs> saying Jesus Christ is God because he is the mediator. He is the bringer. He is the cause of that promise. Okay? Now, to the next question, verse 21, Galatians 3. 
See, Paul is working through the logic and the objections. Okay, so if all that is true, is the Lord therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. Why? For if a law had been given <laughs> that was able to give life, if there was a law given that is able to give life to a sinner, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. So, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Paul says, perish the thought. But slow down. Don't be too quick to deduce false judgments from the statement. Slow down and understand the argument. God gave both the law and the promise. But for different purposes. And it was not the purpose of the law to give life. It was not the purpose of the law to sanctify a sinner. Because here a lot of reformed theology say, oh, you come to Christ for justification, but you go to the law for sanctification, foolishness. That's not true. Okay? The law <laughs> was not given to give life. There's not even a law that is able to give life. Otherwise, theoretically, it would have been possible if men were not sinners and were able to keep it perfectly that they could earn life by it. But Paul says, there is not a single law that is able to give you life. So what do you need the law for? Okay? If the law is not opposed to God's promises, how then can their relationship be understood? There is a relationship that has to be understood. Answer. By recognizing or appreciating that while the law could not justify or give life, it did a work. It prepared the way for the gospel. The law prepared the way for the gospel. So the law is a tool to prepare for the gospel, but not to be the rule of life for the redeemed. Okay? <laughs> so how did the law do that? It declared the whole world as guilty. Thus, the contribution of the law to this whole matter. It declared the whole world as guilty before God. The law pronounced all men guilty and condemned. And when people, by God's grace, come to this recognition, to this realization, they give up attempts to please God by their own works. Okay? And then they stand by the way that God has prepared for them to receive the promise of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, if anyone is still talking law, it means they are unconverted. 
was if he had been converted, you realize that is not the way of life. You go to the way of life. You stand in the one who is Christ Jesus, who brought the promise. He accomplished the promise for us. Okay? Hear this. Verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise could be given because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to those who believe. The scripture here is another way to say the law. The law imprisoned everything under sin. That is what the law does. It imprisons under sin. But that was not the end. There was a reason. The reason was so that the promise could be given because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Not because of our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And this promise is given and has been given already through faith apart from our own obedience to the law. Salvation has come to us apart from our own obedience. Okay? That's clear teaching to me. Here it is. Now, this is the result of what Christ has done. This is what Jesus has done. By his appearing. First 23. We have, we have been made sons of God. We have been made heirs of the promise. Now, before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being kept as prisoners. You see, that's what the law does. You're in custody, you're a prisoner, until until faith, until the coming faith would be revealed. The law keeps as prisoners, not as free men and women. But it was until the coming faith would be revealed, until the arrival of Christ. It is he who was the coming faith. The advent of faith. But that is not saying that justifying faith was not there before Christ came. Justifying faith was there in the Old Testament as we learn of the story of Abraham, okay, of David and all the Old Testament saints. But its full expression found itself in the work of Christ. Okay, when he showed up. Verse 24. Paul then concludes this way and says, Thus the law, he is now telling us the function of the law again, had become our guardian until Christ, so that we could be declared righteous by faith. And the Greek word translated as guardian or schoolmaster or tutor is paedagogos. P-A-I-D-A-G-O-G-O 
S. That's where we get our English word pedagogue. And there's not a good exact equivalent in our times because of the differences in culture. Okay? The King James translates it as the schoolmaster, but it wasn't really a schoolmaster. The pedagogos was a slave to whom a son was committed by rich folk, royal families. From about age six or seven or younger to puberty. And these pedagogos or the disciplinarians were strict disciplinarians. Don't miss that. They were very severe disciplinarians. And they were charged with guarding the children from the evils of society and giving them moral training. Okay? Giving them moral training. Pay attention to this. The pedagogues had a temporary assignment of preparation of especially the heirs of the rich families prepare them in their royal duties and responsibilities. Okay, you may find that clauses with the Queen of England and her entourage. Okay. And that preparation, as I said, involved severe discipline and punishments, but we only for a time. Okay? So their assignment was temporary. It expired at a particular time upon the graduation of the heir at about 14 years of age. Once that son had reached 14, they graduated out of the care of that disciplinary. They were no longer under their authority. Okay? But hear this now. Let's go But now that faith has come. But now that Jesus has come, we are no longer under a guardian. There's been a graduation ceremony. When Jesus shows up, there is a graduation from the authority of the pedagogues, which here is the law. It's obvious. That's a comparison. We are no longer under the tutor. That is clear teaching to me. The redeemed are no longer under the law because faith has come. Also, the Lord did not lead us to Christ. Because some translations kind of give the impression that the law is what leads you to Christ. Rather, it prepared us for the gospel. It prepared for the arrival of Christ. The Holy Spirit is he who leads us to Christ. God the Father is he who leads us to Christ 
as Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. It is the Father who draws to Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ. Yeah? Verse 26, we're almost done. Now, this is what has happened upon graduation. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So in Christ, we have become sons of God through faith, not by law. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ on the day of graduation of that kid who was being trained by the pedagogues. They were given, a ceremony was done, and they were given a special garment. It was clothed them to say they had taken the full rights of being an heir. And Paul says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. All believers have been clothed with Christ. And if I may add, the child, before their graduation, they wore clothes that did not indicate any royalty. They wore regular clothes, clothes for them to work in the fields, to get dirty. But upon graduation, they have a different set of clothes. So the believer in Christ has been clothed with this righteousness so that they are not slaving anymore under the pedagogues. Okay? <laughs> so in the light of that, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. You have graduated to the same level. And some will come to this and say, oh, see, that says there are no more gender distinctions in the church body. There's no more real distinction between male and female. You can be whatever gender you want. That's false. That's not what it's been saying. Okay? He is saying all these people groups have the same standing and they wear the same righteousness. They have the same inheritance in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants as according to promise. All right. So, so many things have been said. Let's conclude this way. I believe we have answered the question to someone who is not in unbelief. <laughs> Do we void the law through faith? And I said that question was asking or speaking to the function of the law in salvation history, in salvation history, not continuity of the covenant. And saying, the law had its God-given function and expiration date, just as this heir had their own day of graduation. Yes, it did not and could not bring the promises because the inheritance was always of promise 
and that is of grace, and that is of Christ, and never of works. And by its nature, the law is not of faith, because it demands works. And works and promise do not go along in attaining the promise. So through the faith of the gospel, we establish the true God-given purpose of the law to show us that we are sinners by increasing our transgressions, giving us the knowledge of sin, make us all guilty before God, and saying the promise of salvation is only made certain, is only made sure for us through the faithfulness of Christ. And to us, it has come by faith in faith alone and not by the works of the law. So that is how you establish the law through faith. That's the connection between law and faith. Because the gospel is going to say, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. All right? That's God's gospel. We're done. Praise God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for these many words that we sought to understand the connection between law and gospel and making the necessary distinctions that we may believe correctly the matter of the promise, the inheritance of salvation that you freely gave us conditioned only on the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. We thank you for these who have gathered to hear this message. May you cause them to understand what is being said. That the law, gospel distinction, is not an anti-law idea, it is not an antinomian idea, but it is a God idea, it is a gospel idea, it is the truth. I pray, Lord Jesus, for your people, keep them, guide them. In these evil times, remember these families who lost their loved ones in the shootings, in Buffalo and in Texas, have mercy upon them. Lord, may you perchance use this experience for them to draw them to the truth of Christ. We thank you for all things that you've done. We thank you for keeping us in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. We are done. Bye-bye. Oh, by the way, I am not going to be available on Sunday next week. So, we'll see. If the Lord grants me strength, I'll have a message. I'm going to be traveling to see someone somewhere. The details to be revealed. <laughs>